Hello. Thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Chief Nursing Officer for APACN. I'm here today with Marty DeWicke, Director of Clinical Operations for Pharmerica, and Jeff Herr, Manager of Clinical Operations in the West for Pharmerica. Marty and Jeff join us to discuss a pharmacist's perspective on coding section N of the MDS, what an indication of use is versus the diagnosis, and ways nurse assessment coordinators or NACs can improve coding accuracy for this section. Welcome, Marty and Jeff. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. Thank you, Amy. Well, let's dive in. Section N of the MDS requires an indication for use if any high-risk medications are used by the residents. There seems to be some confusion around the RAI user's manual's definition of indication of use. Can you tell us from a pharmacist's perspective what the difference between indication of use and diagnosis is? Yeah, that's a great question, Amy. A diagnosis is the assessment that a particular medical condition is present, while an indication is the reason for use. So an example would be the diagnosis or specific condition would be a patient that has hep C. However, the indication refers to the reason a medication might be used, for example, liver failure. So CMS considers the indication to be defined as the identified documented clinical rationale for administering a medication that is based upon the prescriber's assessment of the resident's condition and therapeutic goals. So that said, you still need to code medications according to their therapeutic category and or pharmacologic classification and not how they're used. So for example, oxazepam prescribed for the use as a hypnotic would still be coded as an anti-anxiety per its drug class. Thank you, Jeff. Marty, did you wanna add anything? I do. So I think indication is where we struggle, right? You can Google diagnosis for any medication and kind of get a generalized diagnosis for any particular medication. But indication is very specific to the patient and the resident, and it's very specific to the prescriber's assessment of that patient and the therapeutic goals. And tying the therapeutic goals into the indication, that's also a way that we can, you know, when the therapeutic goal has been achieved, it's a signal for us to taper off or even stop, or it provides another layer of monitoring and providing quality care, making the best use of that medication with that resident. Thank you, Marty. That brings me to another question. Can prophylaxis be considered an appropriate indication? Well, Prophylaxis is really not an indication by itself. First, to be appropriately used, it would need to say prophylaxis for something. For example, prophylaxis for angina or stroke. But then once it's detailed, it can be considered an appropriate indication uh, at that point. We do see a lot of MARS that just say prophylaxis. And so that would get a big no that it's actually used as an indication. So definitely has to be detailed exactly what it's being used for. Excellent, thank you for that. My next question is, what if the indication of use is not an approved use of the medication? Well, another great question, and we see this a lot in our arena. There's 
oftentimes that drugs are used other than an indication that is FDA approved. It has to be basically standard of practice. So drugs that are used for indications other than those in the approved labeling may be considered covered under Medicare if it's determined that the use is medically accepted and taking into consideration the major drug compendia, which is authoritative medical literature and or accepted standards of medical practice. Excellent. Marty, did you want to add anything? I think that it's referred to off-label. And off-label is perfectly legal and perfectly acceptable, but it really hinges on good documentation from the prescriber. So I use the example of Welbutrin all the time. Welbutrin is an old drug. It was brought to market as an antidepressant in the 80s. And then in the 90s, we discovered that it was a great drug to help people stop smoking. So there was no FDA-approved indication for Welbutrin to help people stop smoking, but we know that if you can help people stop smoking, it prevents strokes and it just an overall, you know, promotes wellness concept of using Welbutrin. Perfectly acceptable, perfectly legal, and many prescribers have used it that way, and it's been a benefit to the healthcare system. So off-label is perfectly okay, but it does require good documentation, and it does require some investigation. So if you were not looking specifically at that resident or at that resident's history or in their record, in their past, you might think Wellbutrin was being used as an antidepressant in that patient when, in fact, it may be being used for, you know, substance control and substance abuse. Yeah, that's a great point, Marty, because what we look for as pharmacists when we're reviewing these residents is certain monitoring parameters, let's say. And so... That's a perfect example of Wellbutrin. You know, if it's being used as an antidepressant, we're going to be looking for different monitoring parameters, especially behaviors. And that's why the indication is so important. And that's why this change to Section N was brought about. Thank you. Excellent point. Another area that is confusing for the NAC is drug regimen review. Some of this confusion may stem from the fact that there is a different definition in the REI user's manual for coding drug regimen review at Section N than there is drug regimen review in the state operations manual. Can you explain this difference and what the state operations manual requires from the pharmacist for drug regimen review? Jeff, we'll start with you. Yeah, this is a great one. For the sake of section N, the drug regimen review, CMS first lets you know that it's not mandatory that a pharmacist does this review. Even though they call it a drug regimen review, and that makes it very confusing, it can be done by nurse and physician. However, the scope of practice section N presents for determining a clinically significant medication issue is in the scope of practice for a pharmacist. So a clinically significant medication issue is a potential or actual issue that is the clinician's professional judgment warrants physician communication and completion of the prescriber recommended actions by midnight of the next calendar day. In other words, it's something that's so important that it needs to be taken care of right away. And so clinically significant means effects, results, or consequences that materially affect or are likely to affect an individual's mental, physical, or psychosocial well-being either positively by preventing a condition or reducing a risk, or negatively by exacerbating, causing, or contributing to a symptom, illness, or decline in status. 
So pharmacists can look at the medications and disease states right away and pick out a lot of the issues. Other disciplines may not be able to do that. So that's why it's really important for the sake of Section N that a pharmacist is actually involved in that review. Now that said, this review is basically looking for immediate issues that need to be taken care of right away. The drug regimen review in the state operation manual is different. It's all-inclusive and it looks at the whole chart and not only looks at the immediate issues for clinically significant issues, but it also looks at the long-term medication use and making recommendations that tailor to the current medication profile to optimize the therapies and to make sure that the nursing facility and physicians are monitoring all the aspects of the therapy. So it's a much more robust review. It really does deep dive into charts, into progress notes, doctor notes, labs, disease states versus indication, all of that. So that's the difference between the two reviews. Thank you for that. Marty, did you want to add anything? Yes. So I think just to boil it down, Jeff did a great job of the overview. To boil it down as a pharmacist during the monthly drug regimen review, I'm responsible for all things drug-related as far as all the residents in the facility go. So we have to evaluate whether the dose is appropriate, if the drug's being monitored appropriately, if the resident's experiencing any side effects from the drug, if the drug is therapeutic, if there are transcription errors. It's just so comprehensive. And Jeff mentioned this in his answer as well, but I think that kind of boils it down to what we as pharmacists are responsible for, and we use our license to do all those things, to look at the whole patient and everything drug-related that goes on with that patient. And then Section N, as Jeff said, is more about clinically significant, more emergent, and readily seen in a review. Thank you. I'm going to shift gears to a question we get frequently. Would aspirin be considered an antiplatelet medication for N0415? And is there a dose requirement or type of aspirin that would be considered an antiplatelet medication, such as only enteric-coated or only low dose? Jeff, we'll start with you. All right, Amy, great question. Aspirin is in the antiplatelet drug class, and because it has been shown to really produce important reductions in cardiovascular disease, morbidity, and mortality, especially among survivors of a wide range of occlusive CVD events, including subsequent coronary heart disease, and especially MI, myocardial infarction, and stroke, daily low-dose aspirin therapy may be recommended for that primary prevention of heart attack or stroke. So the diagnosis would be CVD, coronary vascular disease, and the indication is a prophylaxis for stroke. The reason low-dose aspirin is generally used over higher doses of aspirin is really because of the toxicity that may come about in the higher doses of aspirin. And lower dose has been shown to be effective, so doctors will go with a low dose for that indication. Thank you for that. Marty, do you want to add anything? I think Jeff gave a great answer. The only thing I would like to add is that what I see commonly is aspirin is confused as an anticoagulant versus an antiplatelet, and it is definitely an antiplatelet. That's an excellent point, Marty. When you look at Section N0415, high-risk drug classes, both of those classes are in there. 
In E, it's anticoagulant. In L, it's antiplatelet. So for payment purposes, really important that the MBS coordinator who is inputting this information knows the difference between the anticoagulant and antiplatelet. Excellent. Thank you. Is there anything else that either of you would like to share with our listeners today? I think just to wrap it up with this new section and update, it's important to note that these high-risk drug classes identified by CMS will require the staff education uh, to recognize the side effects that can adversely impact the resident's health and quality of life and safety. So it's really important that the IDT, the interdisciplinary team, usually the nurse, medical director, pharmacist, will continually need to identify these high-risk medications used by the facility beyond just to comply with the new section and requirement. The team needs to ensure that the residents and resident representatives understand the indications for use and the monitoring of these adverse effects so that we can make sure that they're on the safest medication possible. Thank you, Jeff. Marty? Sure. You know, our population takes a lot of medications. I don't think anybody would argue with that. We've all seen that, you know, 12 medications, 21 medications, 30 medications. That's common amongst the patient population that we care for. And medications are great. They prevent disease. They improve health. We can lower blood pressure. We can prevent strokes. We can cure infection. We can treat pain. And the list goes on and on. But all medications carry risk. And the risk ranges from an upset stomach or a headache to bleeding out or even severe liver damage, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think identifying the higher risk drugs and having a really good system that documents whether there is an appropriate need for taking that risk is really a good thing. And it's worth investing in systems that promote the best use of these high risk medications. It's just a wise investment. It has multiple benefits from improving the overall well-being of our residents to reducing hospitalizations and even to better manage a pharmacy spend. Thank you, Marty. That was great information. Thank you both for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us, Amy. Sure. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for nurse assessment coordinators, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NACCHAT podcast.